Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I am your host, Josh Schlossberg, and for this episode, we'll be speaking with Dana Yildirim, who lives in Wisconsin with her husband and five kids and works with Extinction Rebellion and the National Launch Team for XR America, amongst many other things. Welcome to the podcast, Dana. Thank you. It's great to be on. Well, I'm so happy you could take the time. And I believe we got in contact with one another through Extinction Rebellion Facebook group. As, mm-hmm. uh, as many drawbacks as social media have, sometimes you can connect with folks. And, uh, you know, one times out of ten, it's a useful tool, right? <laughs> yep. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved with Extinction Rebellion and a little bit about what they're doing for listeners who may not be as familiar with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I got involved with Extinction Rebellion um, when we heard about Extinction Rebellion um, forming. I, I'd been part of another um, group that was trying to create the DNA, the organizational structure for a decentralized um, organization in the United States that was addressing climate um, at the intersection of climate collapse and, and racial healing. Hmm. And um, that group um, is was moving moving slower than hmm. uh, than than I was excited about. Right. Extinction Rebellion came along and was doing almost all the same things that we were doing that we were creating. Hmm. Um, and and one of the one of the basic ethics of decentralized organizing is, you know, if someone else is doing something that you were already doing, you don't have to keep doing it, you know, join them. Um, So I was very interested in in Extinction Rebellion. Um, I had experienced that in my organization, there was um, oftentimes a, a, it was, let me just think of how to say it. People were fighting about identity politics or attacking each other for not being woke enough. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, um, I would say, you know, in very crucial moments, it was often happening. And um, and especially, I'm I'm on the autism spectrum, and I experienced that it was a really dangerous. That and in, mm-hmm. it's typical, really, for climate groups to be to have wokeness be a really big important thing in there. Um, but it wasn't working uh, for me. Mm-hmm. So um, Extinction Rebellion was not trying to emphasize uh, the wokeness piece, mm-hmm. um, and um, at least in its origins and its DNA, that was not what Extinction Rebellion was envisioning. And their so their theory of change seemed to be have the most chance of activating the widest spread of people Mm. and it seemed to be have a defense built in against the kind of infighting that i'd experienced in various organizing spaces including in that organization yeah well it's interesting that you bring up sort of i wouldn't say dysfunction but let's say infighting because that is extremely common of course in any organization anytime (laughs) more than one Mm -hmm. human gets together, there can be conflict. Sometimes it's even inside of one human, of course. So Mm -hmm. a lot of our movements, of course, have been almost disabled by that to a certain degree. And there are many different 
roots of it, I think it's just personality differences or just the way the structure is set up or, you know, like we were saying, maybe even just human nature. But could, could you speak a little more to some of the, the issues that came up in regards to, let's say, some of the social justice component? Because let me just frame that prior to that. Personally, I think when social justice aspects became interjected into environmental issues, it was an extremely important thing, and it remains such. Like, we can't just look at, here's the natural world, and here are humans, right? We have to look at the interconnections there, and so aspects of intersectionality, whatever you want to call it. So personally, I think when all of a sudden we started to say, okay, it's not enough to say force, we have to be aware that there's racism and sexism and things like that. Personally, I think that's excellent. But of course, sometimes that ended up taking over the conversation and, and made things a little more difficult and maybe not as much based on the mission. So that's just my personal experience. I'm curious a little more if you'd be willing to speak to that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I agree with everything that you've just said. Um, and the... <sighs> The thing is, I, I really wouldn't leave it. I wouldn't leave it as a mystery about what causes this infighting. Mm. The main, um, you know, the root cause of the infighting is very clear for me to see, and that is that it's the hum- the pecking order, mm. the the, so- the social instincts that drive humans, mm-hmm. at, and that conjoined with um, pent up grief that. Mm that climate organizers are not allowing themselves to be overrun by. So they have they feel like they have to hold it all plugged up and it leaks it leaks all over the place so that they are getting in conflicts with each other. Yes, that's that's really an excellent point there. So it's not even even necessarily the issues itself, the contentious issues that come up around identity politics, you know, of course, which is a work in progress and we're all figuring out the different aspects of that. But you're saying it's coming from, well, two things there. You're saying that pecking order, so as in what kind of like the... Popularity popularity Mm -hmm. on one side, um, popularity and the desire to be liked. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, fear of being rejected um, and not wanting to say the wrong thing or be um, made fun of or that kind of thing. So wanting to be part of the group and then also for some folks, I suppose, wanting to dominate the group comes up, right? Yeah, it does. Um, But usually it's just all the little, all kinds of constant micro, what, you know, people would call like microaggressions or microtransgressions or micro submissions. There's all of this social activity happening all the time that's generating conflict because people have to fight for their place in the pecking order. It's not really that everyone wants to be at the top of the pecking order. It's just that no one wants to get kicked out. And, you know, and so one way to, to stay in the group, but not get kicked out is to value signal shame. You know, if you think about like a pack of dogs, Mm -hmm. um, and, one dog has done something wrong or one of the higher up in the pecking order dogs is mad at that dog and they, you know, this dog uh, puts his nose down to the ground and his tail between his legs and slumps over in shame and they let him stay. They don't kill him, you know? So there's a lot of value signaling that's happening um, around either it's, if you can't value signal, 
that you're one of the really good ones, then you have then your only other option is to value signal something along the lines of shame, mm-hmm. so that you don't get kicked out. Right. Well, and also the idea of you can do something yourself to you know, raise your status, like maybe some excellent action or something like mm-hmm. that, or you can point out, no, this person has done something bad, exactly. and that sort of makes you higher by default. You know, which is exactly. to say that sometimes there aren't legitimate issues to point exactly. out. But I, I think, you know, have you heard of the concept of, you know, calling out versus calling in, you know? Oh, yeah. Right. Def- definitely. And, and so what, what everybody's worst nightmare is that they'll be canceled. And, and the environment is actually a very high cancel environment. There's, has, a lot of, there's a lot of that happening. It has become that. And, and that's more in what you would call, I suppose, leftist circles, which is ironic because then we end up canceling each other instead of yep. those who truly truly disagree with us but yeah the idea of canceling in versus or calling in versus calling out for folks who don't know calling out is i am publicly letting everyone know that this person did something wrong and we're going to address it versus hey person i saw you you said this thing you know between a one-on-one conversation and i was just wondering but it's a lot easier to just kind of grandstand and frankly, I mean, I personally have experienced this sort of stuff. It's it's easier to get mad about something in someone than it is to sort of even forgive that person. And that means going to them and privately discussing. So have, mm-hmm. do you think that if folks made more effort to just have those one-on-one dialogues before trying to make everyone know this person is evil, that, that we would be able to resolve things better? Yeah, and I think that that I do. And I think that that's exactly what would be happening if the primary motivator was not the pecking order. I think the reason the reason that it doesn't happen is because people's interest is not truly in resolving conflict as much as it is in using conflict to 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 gain rank. Yeah, well, one of the things I noticed when I was uh, and I guess I'm still an activist these days. I call myself a recovering activist kind of as a joke. But when I was more active in activism back in the day, I noticed very few of us, including myself, really were paying much attention to our, you know, our internal psychology, as in making sure our our mental health was at sustainable levels. And Mm -hmm. I, I found that was very common in activist circles. And I ended up going working on a lot of myself. And I found that not only was that just important in general, it actually made me more effective as an activist in terms of like understanding (laughs) where I'm at, but interacting with other folks. So you mentioned dealing with grief. That was something Mm -hmm. that you mentioned. So that's certainly one thing to address that perhaps a lot of us don't. We just kind of react in in what anger or anger was my thing. Like when I see an injustice, I'm like, I rage against it. And that's still Mm -hmm. something I struggle with sometimes. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm coming from a place of pent-up grief. So could you speak more to that, please? Yeah, I can. Um, Grief is the process that we go through when we're coming to terms with reality Hmm. about something. And, and there are not a lot, there's a lot of stages or ways that the, that the mind and heart try to defend against a truth, whatever the given truth is, mm-hmm. you know, like my loved one is gone now and I'll never hug them again. Um, you know, the mind has to try to cope with it. And so it has these sort of five basic stages of how we react to truth that is hard to let in. Mm-hmm. And um, and so those those involve anger being one of those one of those and um, denial is another 
negotiation and bargaining is another and, and depression is, is another and then acceptance is the last so um and and but it's really not a linear process sure. it's it's people flow through different stages and sometimes get caught up in in eddies of certain pieces of the grief process but usually people are kind of staving off depression or mm-hmm. sadness the it's it feels safer to feel anger than it does to feel the vulnerability of despair right and so even depression is an attempt not to totally feel the sadness. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And why do you suppose so few activists are really interested in looking at those internal spaces? The thing is that there's a there's a uh, there's a kind of governing body inside our psychology that is our our inner critic or 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 our inner sense of self, or it, it may occur differently for different people, mm-hmm. but that, but that inner self says, this will destroy you. Hmm. You can, you can't feel this. You won't be able to do anything. You'll be, you'll, you'll, it'll, you will just turn into a puddle on the floor. Um, if you don't feel that you have to keep, you have to keep fighting. You have to keep trying. Yeah, I, I, I suppose that's true. So in terms of sources of grief, so of course, a lot of times it just comes from being a human being, right? It's a, it's tricky to be a human being probably ever, but particularly these days. But then there's also the grief around just the eco crisis, whatever you want to phrase that. I call it like ecosystem unraveling. You know, some people call it, you know, climate crisis is a part of it, all that sort of stuff. So would you say that a lot of activists, it's just confronting the fact that the natural world is falling apart is would that you say is a main source of the grief yeah especially that's true for every or almost every person who who's alive today uh, not just activists but um children mm. elders everyone is grappling with at a subconscious level everyone is confronted by the fact that the world is changing and is not going to be able to continue as it as it had before um, so, but especially clearly when we get into an activist context or, you know, uh, an organizing context, like with Extinction Rebellion, hmm. these, these are people who are, have, have admitted to themselves that this is such a dire threat that they have to do something. And, um, it's very, once you've gotten to that point, there's just, it's, it's, it really tears, it tears people up. Um, and, and it has to tear people up. Hmm. That's the thing. It's not that it shouldn't. It's not that it's the unfortunate context of the situation. It's that when we let ourselves get torn up by what is really true, Mm -hmm. we become, we, it's like a purification process or a resurrection. Um, so that's the thing that people are not understanding yet on, you know, on, on the scale that, that, they, that people are, are needing to grieve. Mm. They're mostly trying to just get on with it and, um, and, and feel about it another day. And uh, go ahead. Maybe you can ask me a question to help direct me. Yeah, well, no, I think what I think what you're saying is perfect. Absolutely, getting into the territory that I'm very interested in. So there's 
on one side, right, there could be folks who are in denial about everything. It's like, oh, well, climate change, you know, it's always happened, whatever. Th those folks might be hard to reach right Can now. Yeah, well, let me just speak to you about denial, too, because okay, denial please. denial is very common in Extinction Rebellion also, okay. and, and organizing spaces. There's so many different shades of denial, but basically, um, people feel like if they've if they if their brain admits that it's happening, hmm. then they don't have to feel about it. Um, that they're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I okay, yes, I get it. Um, but they haven't let their heart reckon with the situation hmm. yet. Oh, oh, that's really interesting. So, rationally on paper, well, okay, ecosystem collapse. I I get that mm -hmm. equation. Mm -hmm. Let's move on. Versus. Wow, this is my home and the home of everything, and mm -hmm. aspects of it are deteriorating and degrading. That mm -hmm. should have an emotional impact on me. So letting that in. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, and so, but it's you can't. It's true that when we are when our hearts are open, that it does have an impact. But mm -hmm. it's not really true that it should have an impact. Mm. There's not really a right way to be. But if we're really reckoning with the whole thing, then, then our hearts will, you know, be destroyed. The world that we thought we were going to be leaving for, for the next generation is not going to be like that. Sure. And it might not be, there might not be a next generation. Um, and the thing I want, another piece I wanted to say about the denial is that the way that human minds, most minds are, are wired, they're very compartmentalizing. So you can have a fact in a, in a mental compartment without it sort of, um, defiling the other compartments, right? You've got the compartment of, you know, um, what's happening with the atmosphere. And then you've got the compartment of what's happening with technology and, you know, and so people just kind of don't ever lay them stack them all together on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And that's another form of denial. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I appreciate you articulating that concept of the shades of denial. I think that's really important. So it's not simply climate denial. There, there goes into the spectrum there into folks who are certainly not in denial about the climate. So that's really, mm -hmm. really fascinating. But then I would say the other side of the scale is Folks who are so, uh, you know, and, I, and this has been me too, you know, I guess doom and gloom is what you can say. The, everything is going to fall apart. Every single one of us is going to die. And therefore, I mean, when I hear stuff like that, it's like, well, then you might as well just carouse in the streets, right? Like, that's not a very inspiring message. So how do wait, you... Wait, 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 Josh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, so a lot of times people who are saying those things, their goal might not be to inspire you. Right, right. Well, that's that's true, and that, but that's the question, right? So it's a matter of, as environmentalists, let's let's first of all, you know, let's just say that everything will fall apart eventually, which I, I think is true. But if the idea is to, I suppose, mobilize folks to address it, how much how much information is good to be putting out there? You know, how much how dark is too dark? I suppose is my question. Yeah, it's a, there's a different answer for everyone and for different organizations have different strategy. Mm -hmm. it, with Extinction Rebellion, the goal is to tell the truth. 
And um, when somebody on, you know, goes to a heading for extinction talk, Mm -hmm. a really good, a really good heading for extinction talk will um, help, will walk people into the dark abyss of hopelessness. Um, That's really, that is really appropriate. That's what the science supports is that there, there's probably, it's probably too late for us to save much of anything. Um, And so a good heading for extinction talk will then then be inspire people mm-hmm. to realize that there's so much we can do um so when, so mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt but yeah so i guess i suppose i'm on that spectrum i'm a little bit more optimistic but i am curious mm-hmm. to hear more about if so inspiring people so in terms of adaptation or the prevention of every ecosystem being destroyed, I, I suppose, the, what would be the, the thing working mm-hmm. towards? Yeah, Extinction Rebellion is not advocating policy, but yeah. but so we're advocating working together, right. um, joining together across the, across the division that historically we would accept, that divisions over race and class and um, and ideology and those kind of things that we, we if we are all reckoning with the, the the truth of the science that the science is measured about where we are in in geologic history that um that we we can organize and that organizing mm-hmm. can be beautiful and exhilarating and um it it's it's a reviving of culture and regenerative culture like a lot of what you're you were asking about or you know talking about that mm-hmm where as an activist you experienced burnout. So um, in Extinction Rebellion, there's a lot of value placed in regenerative practices. I understand. That's that's excellent. And that sort of ties in a little bit into maybe the transition movement. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Yeah. So the transition movement, for folks who aren't aware, it's kind of about climate adaptation and food supplies and taking care of your communities. And then the other side of activism has typically just been, you know, fighting the system, things like that. So it seems like Extinction Rebellion is wanting to combine those aspects, which I think is a a really positive thing. And one of the things I really appreciate about Extinction Rebellion. Uh, But on that topic there, so personally, I, as a human being, I respond to a dire situation. I remember years ago, being inspired to become an activist, partly because of tree sit stuff, but also I would see these this footage of, there was one video in particular, it was I think in Humboldt County, California, it was cops swabbing pepper spray with Q-tips directly into the eyes of people who were just peacefully locking down in a, in a building. You know, they weren't hurting anything, they were definitely an inconvenience and was probably trespassing, you know, whatever, but not hurting anyone. We got to get them out of here. Swab the the Q-tips right into the eye, and most of them were young women, and I was so outraged by that. I was like, that's it. I'm going to get involved. Years later, I showed that film at a little mini sort of film showing thing I was doing, and most of the people left. <laughs> it was too much for them. So, I guess the question is, if the messaging is it's it's too late for for all life, then why would people want to do anything? Mm-hmm. My experience is that people people don't necessarily immediately want to do anything. What my husband, when he has done his presentations of the Heading for Extinction talk, um, he he shows a kind of a bell curve of people's 
uh, receptivity to climate concern. Hmm. And um, but that when the message gets more dire, that the bulk of people will actually step back, like you say. Hmm. But that there are that there are some people. There is still a percentage who will be inspired and and step up where before they were willing not to act, then they feel compelled to act. So the goal is to continue to mobilize that set of people who is who is naturally able to respond to a dire situation. It's just not in everyone's nature. We're goal, our goal is to mobilize 3.5% of people in this completely full-on active organizing way. Huh. And, and in doing that, then, um, then there, there gets to, you know, then there's a whole bunch of passive support okay. that allows that to make the, the difference. Right. So it's kind of like engaging, to put it simply, quality over quantity, not that we're judging humans based on their mm -hmm. quality, but finding the mm -hmm. right audience versus mm -hmm. everyone has to know. So, you know, kind of like uh, when, a, when a popular band, they put out their popular album and everyone across America likes that, but then the true fans only like some of these songs and, and that's... Uh, that's kind of uh, what Extinction Rebellion is doing. It's kind of like the deep, <laughs> the deep tracks, the deep cuts, rather than the uh, the popular hits. Those are the folks that you yeah. get to really engage in a way that is probably useful, right? Because because you want people who are involved for the long haul at a deep level. Uh, if you think that there's still something to save, then it's very useful for people to understand the context that it may be too late. It's it's. Um, hmm. Going to a heading for extinction talk is is tra a transformative experience for most people who go, yeah. and even people, you know, it it helps to cut through this um, sense that we know what the situation is. This is a, one of the forms of denial. We, the the groups that I found, and I I was before I was doing this kind of stuff. I was um, walking across country with my family, talking with people about climate change, but the people who were hardest to connect with about the true gravity of the situation were the people whose lives were most invested already in living, um, living in a, like in, in an eco village, for example, right. um, they wouldn't even talk, you know, come to the climate science presentation or only a few of them would and then it was kind of defensiveness. Um, so mm. it, <laughs> it's interesting, but it's much worse. It's much worse than than any other, you know, any group that would inspire the largest number of people is going to have to be peddling lies. You, the, the, you know, people don't want to hear what's true. The masses are not, don't want to understand that this is this is the end. Sure. So, so if that is the case, so what is there to do? The first thing to do is actually just to imagine, oh my God, what if that's true? Mm -hmm. What, what if it's true? You know, could I, do I want to bring children into this world? Right. Um, do I, how do I feel about going to college or, you know, like really asking those questions, you know, is the work that I'm doing in my church really what I want to do if this is the end, whatever the thing is that you're doing, you, 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 you process it, you mm -hmm. get more and more self-honest and it, it clarifies what your heart really wants you to be doing, how you really want to live. 
I a few years ago I had reason to believe medically that I was about to be diagnosed with a very aggressive form of breast cancer. Mm. And all of a sudden everything I mean it was like less than a day before I really realized that this was what was probably happening. And then it was trippy, you know, the whole world started to to look totally different to me. Everything was just bittersweet, you know, there was like this, everything was dripping with perfection and, and ephemeral beauty. That's the kind of awakening that happens. It's really a spiritual experience mm -hmm. when we, when we let ourselves be penetrated, um, when we let our plans get eroded by the the wind of what's really going to happen sure sure so i think of some folks i know who are definitely not environmentalists in really in any way but they do sort of accept that everything's just going to fall apart and they are pretty much complete hedonists though <laughs> they just mm -hmm. they take mm -hmm. every substance they can you know it's just about feeling good mm -hmm. all the time because um, nothing matters right so mm -hmm. is that a reasonable yeah. response? Um, I'm not going to judge, <laughs> but I, what I'm going to say is that uh, I think that Extinction Rebellion is way more fun. Um, so I, I also tried to cope with it by figuring out how to become an alcoholic. So maybe I could, you know, there was a time in my grief when I just wasn't ready to feel um and I think that's probably the stage that something along the lines, the stage that your hedonist acquaintances are dealing with. Um, but truth is actually really incredibly beautiful, even when it's dying. Um, the, the camaraderie of being in action spaces where everyone is working together to make something beautiful, to tell the truth. Mm -hmm is way more fun than trying not to think about truth. <laughs> I hear that. So you mentioned self-honesty. What does that mean? It's an, I think it's another way of talking. Oh, it's like the opposite of denial, I guess. Uh -huh. it's, it's wanting to know what's true, what's more true, what's more true. It feels more beautiful to be more in touch with what is accurate. Right. That's my experience. That's my experience. Um, mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's scary to look around the corner. You're scared what you might discover. Right. But once, but once you know, you know, and and mo most oftentimes, you you can deal with it. Sure. So I guess my question would be: So how do we know we're being honest with ourselves, right? Because I know in the past I used to have certain really rigid beliefs, and then some other information would come up that contests it and I would just feel this sort of icky feeling and then I would, and I wasn't really conscious of this, this was after the fact I realized, and then mm -hmm. I would sort of just look away. So how do, mm -hmm. how do we catch ourselves? Because it's not like mm -hmm. we can just say, I'm gonna be honest with ourselves. We have all these weird self-defense mechanisms mm -hmm. to keep mm -hmm. ourselves. So how do we deal with that? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the technology that I find to be the most useful is understanding that the heart is the organ that perceives truth. Okay. So if you feel some sensation in your heart when you're looking at a thing, 
it could be sorrow. That's a heart experience. Um, but there's going to be some kind of experience in the heart when, mm. when you're being with truth. I really like that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Leading with your heart rather than your head, not leaving your head out of it entirely. Of course, I think our brains are useful. Yeah. But when the brain is right on, the heart comes online. Sure. Yeah. I've definitely experienced that myself. I feel like mm -hmm. this is a therapy session a little bit, so thank you for that. <laughs> because for me, my my path certainly had been also taking a look at myself. And, and pretty much what's interesting is I didn't really find a lot of my beliefs about you know, environmental destruction really change. I still feel like things are pretty dire and all that. But the way I viewed that did change a little bit. And... I think that was a really essential process for myself. And when I noticed that I was starting to work on that stuff, I found myself more alienated from activist movements because so few other people were working. Not that mm -hmm. I solved mm -hmm. all of my issues mm -hmm. or anything mm -hmm. close to that, but I was growing and I would see other folks almost being resistant to not only their growth, but not really liking my, my growth. Mm-hmm. So right. what do we do if we are working on those issues and those around us are not in a particular movement? I think that, you know, it's just there's no point in in judging what other people do. Right. But 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 for, you know, if we find that we're really um, kind of up against a wall and we recognize that we're not letting ourselves feel certain feelings and if those feelings are are near enough to be felt, then it I would recommend finding a space where it where you, where it's okay to grieve, some kind of a grieving environment or the work of Joanna Macy or um, or or just just a close friend, um, even just a, just talking with an old friend or something and, and just sharing about the experience of because it's very 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 personal. Yeah. That, grief yeah well what do you think about creating a podcast where you can rant about topics because that's what i've done <laughs> that's my coping mechanism <laughs> yeah well it's it's a great project and if you've been through some some grieving a process and reckoning process already you might have it sounds like you may have experienced what i'm describing is that when we let ourselves feel those feelings we be, we are transformed by them and then we come out of that it's almost like a ritual you know it's like a ritual space a transformative space <laughs> when we come out of it we're a new person with new ideas new inspiration new capacities it's that's this may be what you're guided to do it sounds like you are well, for me, this is my second incarnation as a, quote, activist because mm -hmm. I became a journalist and I still am a journalist. But I tried very, very, very hard to portray all sides of an issue across the spectrum. And I found more and more journalism was not interested in doing that. And so I mm -hmm. realized right, I'm going to come back and I'm just going to speak from my heart, but also hear what other people have to say. So it's not certainly mm -hmm. just me. So going into those different aspects, but in the past, mm -hmm. I, I definitely had not developed the idea of looking in myself for, for some of this turmoil. And after maybe about 15 years of doing that, it has helped me tremendously. 
And I, I, it's not like I'm no longer an environmentalist. It's, it's the opposite of that. So I do think some <laughs> folks are afraid. You will change to a certain, but you're not going to give up your core values per se. If you care about the natural world and you're like, oh, if I go through this process, I'm going to not give a crap about forests anymore. It's like, well, don't, don't worry about that. Yeah, right. Um, but that is exactly what, that's that, that's that overseeing body, the superego that we, that I was talking about before the inner critic hmm. that says, you can't, you can't, don't look at the truth. Don't look at the truth. Cause it'll make you into a bad person. Right. Uh, uh-huh. Um, it, it, it's a reasonable fear from that perspective. It's a reasonable fear, but, um, my experience walking, you know, ha- traveling through that place, um, and, and also talking now with many, many other people who have also been forced to travel through the, the land of death, basically, um, is that we, 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 we come out more purified. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's, that's what I mean when I'm saying clarifying that we know much, we know more clearly what we love. We know more clearly why we live. Mm, yeah, I like that a lot. So you're finding that other folks are interested in doing this. We're not alone. Well, it's amazing. This time that we live in right now is so amazing because everyone is aware that collapse is imminent in their own way uh whether it's conscious or unconscious all you need to do is turn on the pop song the pop pop station Mm -hmm. and hear what all the songs are about but everyone knows that collapse is nigh some form of collapse of society the economy etc um state violence so um what people have now is each other Mm -hmm. I would say that when I was going through this initially, I felt quite alone until I discovered uh, support groups online for people who are really coming to terms with it. Right. And that was, that was, I I don't know. I I couldn't have done, I I don't know. I couldn't have survived it. I don't know what would have happened Mm -hmm. if I hadn't, if I hadn't found that support. But in Extinction Rebellion, it's all built in um, because everyone is, is going through the same process. So in a really robust Extinction Rebellion network, there are groups that are hosting grief opportunities people for people to share, to stand up on stage and cry, uh, you know, keen after um, the, the loss of, like for me, I, I always wanted to be a grandma. That was the thing I wanted to be. That was my career. My life career was learning how to be the wisest, quirkiest old grandma. Yeah. But but I had to I had to grieve, and you know I had to stop wanting grandchildren. Um, it was it was quite a a, a death, an experience of dying. But after all of that time. I am so much more free. I mean, uh, for me, being an activist, and I, I think I probably work, it's definitely between 60 and 80 hours a, w- a week. It's basically from morning until night I work for Extinction Rebellion. Um, and But it's I do it because it's fun. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm, I'm able to experience it as fun because I'm not fighting against what is. I, I understand the context of what is. It's probably too late to save anything. But gosh, it's fun to try. Yeah. That's, yeah, fun is an important thing. I think a lot of activist, activist movements leave that out of the mix. And obviously it can't be a 24-7 party unless you have the right perspective on it. But just mm-hmm. partying... If your work becomes the party, then that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's. <laughs> I wish I could share in your podcast. There's a, a song by Dirty Heads, I think, <laughs> like a reggae band. It's uh-huh. called Vacation. You've probably heard it before. No, I haven't, actually. I'll have to check that out. Maybe I'll put a link to that. Yeah. Well, so in this sharing space, and, and I'll let you go in a, in a few minutes because I really appreciate your time, and I know you got lots mm-hmm. to do. So in the sharing space, do you find that men, as often as women or various genders there, will, will share, or does it typically tend to be one gender over another? I think um, it's pretty equal, but usually women would share first. Okay. I mean, most often. Most often... Women are more ready to to share about their feeling experiences, but it's not it's not that the women are more impacted in general by this situation. Uh, men are. It's it's the same thing for men and women. I think it's just different ways of processing it. Sure. I mean, all I know is that would I, as a man, be willing to break down in tears in front of, of a group. I, I think a lot of that is to do with my own issues perhaps, or, or maybe I, that's not a typical thing that I do, but you know, even if that were about to come to me, I would feel like I would try to repress that partially because I guess uh-huh. I'd be embarrassed, but also because uh-huh. I, I do think based on my knowledge of a lot of society that, well, other men are going to look down on me. I, I do think a mm-hmm. fair amount of women would find that unappealing and if I also express my my sadness through anger that's certainly not acceptable so so mm-hmm. how would a, a man such as myself I'm not like pretending I'm some like hyper masculine but I feel like I have a <laughs> decent balance of stuff but but I do yeah. maybe range a bit on the side of having some of those traditional aspects and and I yeah and I think about that stuff so how would you speak to somebody I, such as myself I, about that? I would just say that there's no right way to grieve and it doesn't have to look a certain way. Yeah. But be, being in an environment with people who are who are letting themselves experience the sadness, everybody will be in a slightly different place in, in any given time. But when you see somebody uh, really encountering the the truth that is tearing, you know, causing so much sensation in the heart area, (laughs) it, it brings it up for you too, you know, and the tears will smart in your eyes too in some moments. And that's fine. That's enough. You know, just as long as the heart is experiencing it, then there's growth happening. There's some kind of transformation happening. Okay. I'll have to think about that. Uh, The last time I cried, I was watching, uh, it was a, video of the Grateful Dead and it was Jerry Garcia who I always loved and that somehow made me cry so uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> so that's something. That's a start, I suppose. Um, so, so maybe let's finish this off by talking about how do you talk to kids about this? Because I know you have kids, and you mentioned that this is something that you've done around climate and other things. What, what do we say to them? Mm-hmm. It's, it's really important before adults can do a clean job of talking with kids about climate that they process their own grief first, right, right. Their, their own denial um, their own attachments, uh, their own, you know, just, uh, yeah, it's really about attachment and denial. It's okay. just like with, it's just like with anything, you know, but parents, if they themselves don't quite, aren't quite okay with the, with the truth of the reality, they'll fib to their children, right. you know, oh, don't worry about that. That person's just laying on the sidewalk because they feel tired, <laughs> you know, um, it's that kind of thing. So it's the most terrible lies that, um, that adults are telling children in this era that they're going to have a normal future, that they are going to have, um, careers and things like that in a, in a normal world or what, what we've considered to be normal world. The betrayal that these children are going to experience is going to be epic. And, um, and very personal. Again, you know, my parents lied to me. My teachers lied to me. So the truth is that children would rather hear the truth and that children are capable of handling the truth if it's shared with them with maturity and clarity, mm-hmm. then they then they have better tools for dealing with it than we do. Um, and that's just because children haven't accumulated all of these layers of defense defense mechanisms that that are that that make up who we consider ourselves to be right children children are are cleaner in that way so and more adaptable and resilient it's a generalization but it's a very reasonable generalization yeah yeah, I think I think that's true. And, and it's, a, it's a great point where you're saying, I mean, if you're a therapist, you need to have worked on your own shit before you can help other people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me a bit what you're saying, how the kids are more adaptable than the adults. Watching some of those zombie shows that go on for decades in the zombie world. So we have the adults who they remember all of the, you know, eating uh pop tarts and going to the movies but the kids they never really experience that so to them this is just a world so they're actually a lot less depressed than a lot of the adults in, in that fake mm-hmm. fictional world of mm-hmm. course but i still think mm-hmm. it's a relevant point mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not that we're necessarily going to see zombies but at this point who knows i mean that wouldn't even surprise right. me at this point we know we're going to see resource wars and that's what zombies are an analog for okay well Maybe we can uh, we can end on that. Speak a little bit more to that because I'm actually somebody who writes horror fiction as well, and I do tie biological stuff and in, into it. So so tell me more about that analogy. <laughs> I I think it's just you know the the somebody knocking down on your door and wanting to take this resource that you need in order to survive, which yeah. with zombies is your brain, you know. But in in an, in a natural environment, if you've got someone invading your home, they're coming to take the resources, your food uh, or your wife or whatever away. And that's that's what's going to be happening when we have all of these people 
and finite resources and, uh, you know, less ability to grow food and all of that that we have coming down the pipeline. It so, feels it mm-hmm. feels the same to the I just the brain the the psychological experience of it is yes. zomb, it's like zombies are coming. Yeah, yeah, I totally I totally agree with that. So maybe what's what's one thing that somebody should be doing over the next year in terms of maybe just working on themselves? What would you know? Obviously, people are at different places, but if there's one specific suggestion you could make, if there's a resource that they could take a look at or something to engage in, what would that be? I would maybe suggest that they ask themselves which of you know which people that they have in their life that they feel they can be most real with, mm. and that they um, maybe take carve out some time to connect with those people instead of just putting it off until sometime in the future. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, and I definitely do that. But a lot of my healing takes place in nature, so I go off for a weekly very long hike in different parts of the wilderness. And I moved closer to the wilderness for that. Tomorrow is my hike day. So maybe uh, what's what's a wild place that you've really appreciated over your lifetime? Maybe we can just end with an image of that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, today I was crying watching a video, actually, hmm. <laughs> a video of a starling murmuration. Um, maybe uh, you can link to it on your podcast also. There was a music video that someone made um, so that where they were... Sh- uh-huh. No, I said, what, Starling mur- murmuration. I don't know that word. Yes, yes. Um, you know, like a flock of birds or a school of fish. It's, murmuration is the name for a group of starlings, a huge huh. mass of... Uh, birds in the sky but as they fly around they make all these incredibly ever-changing shapes beautiful shapes uh, <laughs> you know like a school of fish remember in, fi- in Finding Nemo remember that amazing school of fish that gave him directions with their they were all silvery I, I do <laughs> I vaguely remember that yes mm-hmm. they were like from New Jersey or something okay yeah <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So it's um that's talking about self-organizing systems in nature, the beauty of nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I love that image. Well, thank you so much Dana for taking the time to talk to me and for all you've done and all you're doing. Mm. Thank you, Josh. Okay, well you take care. Me too.